Thank you for joining us for the RealCom webinar. Today is part two of our Managing the Construction Process series. It was supposed to be part one, but we had to move this webinar. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, today we'll be talking about leveraging technology to address embodied carbon and align business and engineering goals. And I'm very fortunate to have a great um, panel of thought leaders joining me today. Before we get started, let's go through a few housekeeping items. You can use the Q&A section to submit your questions and comments, and we'll try to get to all the questions in the um, audience and panel discussion at the end. And for the best webinar experience, we recommend that you log out of any other internet applications that are currently running. If you need help throughout the webinar because of any technical issues, you can contact me at sbamperat at realcom.com. You can also download a copy of this presentation deck from the handout section, and we will be recording this webinar for future reference if you want to um, come back and watch part that you missed or if you want to share the recording with any of your colleagues. I would like to introduce the sponsors for today's session, Aorus Group, Buildspace, and Coppertree Analytics, and we will learn more about these companies throughout the session. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to Rory Barnwell. Roy is going to be moderating today's session. He is a principal at DLR Group, a global um, integrated design firm where he leads the smart building practice. DLR Group's um, promise is to elevate the human experience through design. So Rory, thank you very much for um, moderating today's session and I will turn it over to you. Great stuff. Thanks, Sarah, for organizing everything and coordinating everything. And uh, and thanks to Realcom for a great conference in Scottsdale last week. I think anyone that was down there um, would agree. There was a, got great feedback on the program, the venues, the exhibitors, the speakers, and uh, and I guess from my perspective, uh, more importantly, the educational content. It's great to uh, the great mix of the most forward-thinking innovators in our in our industry. Um, and some of my key Realcom takeaways, which I think align closely with uh, what we're going to talk about here today. We've got a fantastic panel, and uh, you know, in the the prep calls, I've had the you know the 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 privilege of listening into some of the conversations here, and I think we're going to have a, a great um, great presentation today. But in terms of leveraging technology to address embodied carbon and aligning business and engineering goals, um, you know, again with what we talked about at Realcom in person last week, which was again, fabulous to see people and, and be <laughs> be able to shake hands or, or bump fists or, or wave at a distance if, if that's what you were into. Um, but uh, decarbonization was uh, very well, very much top of the agenda at Realcom. It usually is along with the uh, smart building technologies to go along with it. Um, I think also uh, with the COP26 climate summit talks in Glasgow, going on at the same time you know as well as uh you know how climate change is impacting us more and more on a daily basis uh, unfortunately <clears throat> unfortunately um that definitely brought that conversation to the forefront uh down in scottsdale and uh look forward to to chatting more about that here today um i would say air quality was also top of the agenda and you know the smart building solutions to enable healthy building operations i think you know both COVID and climate related, again, you know, with the wildfires impacting particulate matter levels and, and an increased emphasis on, on CO2 as a, as a barometer for how well ventilated or poorly ventilated our, our, our built environment is and VOC, VOCs in the context of the materials that we're putting in our building or the cleaning policies that we've enabled uh, throughout this pandemic. 
Um, and you know, again, how do we maintain healthier buildings while staying true to our, our uh, let's be honest, pretty aggressive um, carbon reduction goals? So again, um, looking forward to diving a little deeper on that topic here today as well. And, um, and you know, the theme of the conference was uh, resilience and uh, you know, using technology and innovation to navigate an ever-changing world. That was the, the theme of this year's Realcom, which I think was very relevant and on point. Um, you know, I think that's resilience in, term of, in terms of COVID and everything it continues to, we continue to deal with in the commercial real estate industry. Um, also climate change in terms of resilience and how, how, how resilient is our built environment and uh, to, to, to combat um, you know, how we're being impacted uh, every day uh, with this. Um, so I'm excited for this panel discussion today. Um, again, it's a, it's it's um, part part of a series of three. So um, check out the other ones as well when they come. Uh, I think there's Sarah will have more information on that here at the end. Um, you know, we're going to focus on topics today such as net zero carbon capable designs, um, reducing both embodied and operational carbon emissions, um, evidence based performance. You know, how do we you know bridge that gap between uh, industry predictions and simulations versus reality and actual results. Um, Craig's going to touch on that. And uh, again, I had the benefit of listening to a great presentation Craig gave at, uh, at in Scottsdale as well last week. Um, again, healthy buildings versus operational efficiencies. How do we strike that balance between um, energy reduction, carbon emissions, and still maintaining a, a healthy built environment? Um, utilizing building analytics in the design, construction, and operational processes. I think uh, Keith and Rick are going to really touch on that, and, and um, they've got some great, uh, great points to talk through. And, uh, and ultimately, how do we digitize the built environment? Um, so, without further ado, we'll uh, we'll get to our first panelist, uh, Jason with AECOM. Um, make sure and get your questions into the chat, and we're gonna we're gonna. Have a good Q&A session at the end, so we'll have a chat with all the panelists. So uh, fire your questions in. Um, I'll introduce Jason here first, and he can take it away. So Jason Boland from uh, AECOM, welcome. Uh, Jason is a senior VP and a global lead for research and development, research development and innovation for buildings and places at AECOM, where he directs the Innovation Laboratory Initiative. Jason focuses on leveraging the intersection of building technology, finance, and policy to deliver high-performance and sustainable design solutions that reduce both embodied and operational carbon and deliver net-zero carbon-capable designs. So welcome, Jason, and uh, take it away. Uh, thanks, Rory, uh, and Sarah, and the whole um, Realcom team uh, for the opportunity to have the um, discussion today. Uh, first, I'd like to start with uh, framing of how we're addressing carbon ACOM. Um, about a year ago, I was asked to put forth the uh, strategy uh, that drives innovation from a global perspective, uh, focusing on client challenges uh, and developing our, our foresight as a, as a trusted advisor. And the approach we developed was this innovation laboratory or iLab. Um, this is a distributed global research development innovation network that ties our subject matter experts um, across regions uh, and disciplines, uh, and it's focused on our client challenges. Uh, uh, so we're battle testing minimum viable prototypes um, to, to address the pathways, for example, to net zero carbon and high performance uh, uh, buildings uh, with different approaches and in, in some cases tool suites, of which I'll, I'll share a little bit uh, of that um, uh, today. So 
for me uh, as an architect, um, the construction process smarts with, starts with smart design uh, decisions. Uh, so to further frame why we have been focusing our innovation strategy on carbon, um, we should recognize the shift that has really taken place over the last uh, several decades. Um, and primarily now to address what, what, what I think many of us would consider to be an aggressive climate pledge um, that our clients and including ACOM ourselves uh, have now signed on to. So the idea that green buildings, uh, the idea of green buildings um, is not new, right? It's, a, it's an old idea. Uh, but the last 20 years, it's taken a significant shift. Uh, and that, that shift is really focused on a market-based approach that should foster a widespread adoption. Now we're seeing this at, at various um, speeds in, in, in different market sectors of building typologies, but first that focus was on so-called uh, green materials. Um, and then that turned towards uh, net zero energy um, and uh, energy efficiency that's focused on the operational emissions approach. And you see that operational emissions approach on the left side of the slide. It is really a small segment of the overall understanding of life cycle emissions. What we've done more recently in the past several years as an industry is focus more on that life cycle emissions approach, which is really total carbon. And, and what's great about the operational emissions approach is that it really set us up to think about electrification uh, and the equipment and eventual smart tech that followed that offers us a more direct conduit for the integration, for example, of renewable energies or healthier, more dynamically focused work uh, of spaces or environments that, that we're working in. So today, with electrification as a design strategy that's been largely established that we understand where we're going on that roadmap, and the promise of a clean grid in the future emerging, we know it's not there, it's better in some places than others, but we're heading in that direction. We have shifted more towards the total life, uh, life cycle carbon approach. You see it's a broader spectrum, from product stage, construction stage, uh, building use, end of life, and beyond life cycle, is multiple criteria being looked at at the same time. Because we have the cleaner grid, we're looking forward now focusing on embodied carbon. And what I'm really interested in, and I'll talk a little bit about in the next few slides, is this life cycle emissions approach within the building use um, category. So in thinking about the design strategy for total carbon, it's helpful to divide what I think of as a technological and non-technologic categories. So enhanced envelope and low carbon materials, uh, carbon sequestration and carbon capture, for example, are they're technical for sure, but they're not necessarily technological. Uh, and they address uh, embodied carbon very, very directly. From a technological perspective, advanced MEP systems, electrification, augmented operation, and smart control and renewable energy they're focused on more sensing and this technological integration. So while at least today, they don't seem to have a large impact on embodied carbon, showing based on the kind of pathway uh, as a template that we are seeing, they do have a large impact on operation, operations emissions. And, and this may not be the case in the future. And I think that's an important uh, point to emphasize, largely due to the immense amount of data that these systems are able to capture and can provide information on making embodied uh, choices in the future. Oh, go back one. There we go. So we dig a little deeper. The three categories I identified as the technological component we can break down um, into five smart categories. This is at least how we look at it at AECOM into uh, 
productivity, uh, comfort, well-being, workforce, uh, workplace engagement, safety, security, and access control, energy and water management, and building operation um, and maintenance. I know that this appears contradictory. The categories appear to be focused on this um, operational carbon approach. Uh, and when we model it, it has the biggest impact on operations, not on embodied today. However, the data is telling us how we are using these facilities and gives us an understanding how to make embodied carbon choices for future projects. How many employees are actually using that conference room? How much and what types of spaces are actually being used and at what times? This type of questioning coming and the data is giving us information on that has embodied impacts on the design of the other categories that are more embodied uh, carbon focused down the line. So to drive the integration uh, of systems, uh, iLab has developed our AECOM. Um, oh, skipped ahead one more time. We'll come back to the right slide there. Sorry. Um, AECOM has developed a, a, what we call AECOM Zero Design Suite. So the AECOM Zero, it's an integrated parametric software platform. It's compatible with industry standards and is focused on high-performance building design and decarbonization strategies as an optimization approach. And you can see in the dashboard there, we're covering all of the major disciplines, all with a kind of good, better, best scenario. So the dashboard assesses the viability of net zero carbon design strategies very quickly. Uh, it includes conservation, energy efficiency, on-site generation, carbon sequestration, sequestration opportunities, but also looks like quality of daylight uh, that can uh, impact uh, circadian rhythms and worker productivity. Um, and it develops optimized strategy bundles uh, and ultimately an implementation plan. Down the line, we want to leverage the data gathered in the technological categories that I spoke of previously to shape the physical building and optimize it, thus reducing the embodied carbon footprint on the data captured from the systems typically used to address operational footprint. Thus, that's our total carbon approach. So what, what does that look like uh, coming out of the, the, the ACOM Zero approach? Well, these are the, the typical results. So for example, we can look at a baseline uh, stretched carbon focus, stretched energy focus, and what we call to be transformational or foresight approach. Uh, we score them based on a series of KPIs. And ultimately we can make choices about the total carbon used through a, 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 lens, of, a lens of, I would say, carbon scenes. Um, so ultimately, we want to use the data and this approach to make smarter decisions that drives towards our commitment towards the climate pledge uh, alongside our clients. Um, that's all I'm going to share today. So, Rory, uh, uh, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Thank you very much. Great stuff. Thanks, Jason. Um, great presentation. Um, so we're going to move along here to our next panelist, uh, Craig Stevenson from Oris Group, and we're going to first play uh, a short video to introduce Oris Group. Teams working in silos can't deliver high performance results like healthy indoor air quality or zero energy because team members set goals independently, which leads to delays, wasted money, and missed targets. With Oros 360 technology, we define common objectives from the start, predict building performance before construction using digital simulation and modeling to deliver the highest performance at the lowest possible cost. And you get proof that your building achieved the outcomes you paid for. 
Contact Oros Group today to take the first step. All right. Um, not sure if the sound was off for everyone there, but I couldn't hear that. But uh, Craig, um, welcome. So Craig is the president of Oris Group, which is a technology company based in Pittsburgh. Um, Craig's widely known for his role in establishing Pittsburgh as a leader in evidence-based performance for the built environment. Evidence-based performance use te uses technology to bridge the gap between hoping a building is performing as designed to knowing a building is meeting its performance goals. So uh, welcome, Craig. Hi, Rory. Thank you for that nice introduction. Thank you for, uh, to RealCom for um, this event and asking us to speak. So happy to be here today. And what I want to focus on is building science and how we merge building science with data science to operate buildings for the life, uh, you know, for 75 years and not just design good buildings. So let's talk about that for a second since our time is somewhat limited. So when we talk about building science and data science intersecting, in our industry, these are really kind of two silos that don't speak to each other and they don't cross over very well. So building science, that's the science of physics-based modeling. That's looking at um, envelope optimizations in active systems for heating and cooling and ventilation, and then merging them with data science so that we can see how a building was intended to perform over its life. We're connecting design and construction to operations in a way it really has never been connected before. And we're doing it, <clears throat> excuse me, we're doing it to drive to zero energy, zero carbon, and world-class uh, world indoor air quality. So let's start at the beginning in terms of how, since this was really about construction processes, right? This event, we were asked to come and talk about how do we do this? It's one thing to talk about it. Everybody's buying in, that I speak to at least, is buying into the fact that climate change is a problem and we need to address it. Buildings use 47% of the energy in the United States. It's one of the major contributors to climate change. We need to do better. We're not gonna build our way out of it so we can't remove our buildings, raise them down and build new buildings. We're not gonna renewable our way out of it. We don't have enough you know, rooftop space. We don't have enough money for photovoltaic arrays to renewable our way out of climate change. We have to get after existing buildings and we have to get after building better buildings. So how does that start? It's the natural order of sustainability. This is a concept we look at as passive first, active second, renewables last. Passive first, and this is where Jason and I have a lot of similarities in our presentation because it's logical, right? This is just basic building science. We want to maximize our envelope efficiency for both thermal and air barrier and match our fenestration with it so that that building is tight, it's airtight, um, and it's thermally efficient. We do that because we want to reduce our loads. Once we reduce our loads, we're able to look at decoupling HVAC. That's typically what you'll see in a high-performance building. Ventilation strategies are separate from heating and cooling strategies because ventilation is relatively cheap and easy to use and you can get energy recovery on it. Heating and cooling opens up the door to lower flow equipment, smaller systems, VRF becomes affordable because our loads are so small. Renewables last because we want our photovoltaic array to be smaller and not larger, pretty simple. So these are concepts of site over source, envelope first strategies. And when you look at this, you ask yourself, well, what is the most strat the most energy efficiency strategy we can go after? Basically, that's a passive house science. That's talking about building a building at a 14 site EUI before you begin, before you start to look at renewable strategies and offset. 
that makes offsetting that much easier to do. It's affordable because insulation is always cheaper than systems, and we're doing this at par. So there's plenty of data out there if you research Passive House, and you can look at our blog, that we're doing this at par for cost of construction on large buildings. How does that happen? How do we get there, right? So we have to start setting better goals. Um, Jason certainly touched base on this earlier in that great software that they use to talk about parametrics. We do the same thing. We think that the days of you know, creating an owner's project requirement, an OPR, that's 20 pages deep and filled with theoretical options or sustainability certification programs is gone. We're looking at evidence-based criteria. Think about it. We're setting our goals early using evidence-based criteria. We're using physics-based modeling to determine whether or not we reach those goals. And then we're using measurement verification systems to tell us whether or not we're operating within those design parameters as set in early design. So this is the common thread through high-performance buildings. We're doing it across all metrics, and I think Jason did a wonderful job of demonstrating how that takes place. So the, the building performance options in a building are finite, right? You could talk about energy, you could talk about air quality, light and sun, IEQ. Um, they're finite, and within each of those, we can get after empirical-based evidence to connect it to measurement verification system. This is the work that's being done in high-performance buildings. The next step in the process is early engagement. So if you're going to chase uh, passive house science criteria for a project or even near passive house for getting to um, as much envelope optimization as you can, you've got to start early and you've got to start with an experienced team. Um, and it looks like this. We're setting our goals very early in conceptual planning. We align our project team to those goals. All of the engineers, the architects, every one of them know exactly where we're going with the project. We use iterative modeling, physics-based modeling, dynamic modeling, and we use iterative estimating to basically make our decisions along those pathways. We are not working in silos of the major definable features of the design. We cannot do that in a high-performance building. Why? Well, we're doing our massing and orientation early. We're doing our envelope optimization early. We're doing our narrative for mechanical systems early. These are all happening in early SD. We can't get to the end of SD and figure out, wait, we don't have the perfect optimization to take, a, take advantage of free heat through solar gain, so we have to change our building. That just doesn't happen. Then all of a sudden you have that constraint to deal with when you start chasing it. So when we do this, you have to um, go after the project early. And we look at M&B and we're bringing M&B into discussion in SD as well. You have to do that. Um, and that's how you can start to develop uh, affordable open integrated systems they give you the feedback loops that are built to case studies all the way back to the OPR. This is how it is done in terms of process when you're on a high performance uh, construction project. And at the end of the day, you wanna know, our owners are asking us, did I get what I paid for? For new construction, this has to be answered day one. We cannot wait for 12 months of invoices. We cannot wait for facility managers to get complaints from end users. We need to know day one, did we get what we paid for? And the only way to get that is you have to take the dynamic simulation from that physics-based model we talked about, and you have to bring it into the trend of data. And you have to basically look at it that fashion. We can do it for all forms of energy. We can do it for temperature, humidity, and CO2. We can do it by whole building. We can do it by zone. We can do it by use. Any way you can set up a, a, a IoT meter and sensor, we can export that simulation to tell you whether or not you um, met the goals that you set. And this is what it looks like when you get into um, the data lake. And again, we're relatively agnostic on the data lake as long as, as, long as the simulation is our context. 
and not just history. So these are the parameters of whole building performance, site EUI, source EUI, total cost, greenhouse gas emissions, and water use intensity. We're doing this automatically for meters, invoices, and SIM, and we're looking at these in real time. Obviously, this is a 12-month metric. This is a trend of that 12-month metric. This is when you start looking at the utility itself. Again, we can look across multiple parameters of that utility. This is whole building performance. We're using simulation to understand on an hourly or daily basis if we're meeting the goals that we set. And if not, we then can look at mitigation. Gas, pretty straightforward on a building. CO2, again, we have spikes and that's okay, but you'll notice that that spike is I believe still around, no, the, uh, you're seeing the whole building performance. This goes out of trend over 1,000 ppm, but for the most part, this building is very healthy. So we wanna make sure we use continuous monitoring to understand when we go out of trend so that we can mitigate and we can uh, react. Temperature. Relative humidity. With that, Roy, I'll kick it back to you. Great stuff. Thanks, Craig. Um, a lot of points you covered there that are near and dear to my heart. I certainly have some questions to follow up in, uh, in the Q&A section. Um, I would encourage um, everyone to uh, fire your questions in as you think of them, and we'll address them here at the end. Um, so thanks again, Craig. Uh, so we'll move along to our next panelist, uh, Keith LaRose from Copper Tree Analytics, and we'll start out with a short video clip uh, from Copper Tree Analytics first. Carpentry is on a mission to make sure that smart buildings deliver on their promises. Our AI software, Kaizen, continuously monitors your building's performance, alerting you if a fault is detected or if performance is suboptimal. With no upfront capital investment and an affordable software-as-a-service usage fee, Kaizen results in time and resource savings for facility managers and cost savings for stakeholders. We deliver a comprehensive building analytics solution consisting of an energy information system, a fault detection and diagnostics platform with integrated system performance auditing. Our clients successfully use this powerful tool to move from a reactive or preventative maintenance model to a data-driven, proactive maintenance approach. Carpentry Analytics can help you create operational efficiencies, reduce your building's energy consumption and improve your bottom line. Um, so welcome, Keith. Um, so Keith, with over 20 years with 20 years of experience in high technology in the high technology fields, Keith leads his department at Carpentry Analytics in the role of Vice President of Sales and Marketing. Keith and his department focus on working with partners, clients, and prospects to provide solutions for organizations seeking to create operational efficiencies, become more sustainable, and enhance their bottom lines. So welcome, Keith. Take it away. Thanks, Rory. Yeah, thanks to all the other panelists and to Realcom also for the opportunity today. Uh, very interesting topic, clearly uh, uh, very near and dear to Coppertree as well. 
Um, just going to progress through a few slides. So typically when we think about building analytics, we've had some good, good discussion here already about the design of, of uh, smart, efficient buildings, uh, the modeling and the simulation of, of those buildings. Uh, and the focus that I'm going to speak about today is once the building is built and nearing substantial completion and ready for commissioning, uh, how do we tie all that together in order to make those processes more efficient and to ensure that you know, the real data coming from the mechanical systems, from the models, uh, are being compared from the design criteria, et cetera. Um, so some of the high-level goals and the results that we seek to achieve uh, with that process uh, are, are related to time compression, uh, being more thorough, validating the design, um, helping the operators and the owner to basically take control of this new asset that they have uh, in a mo you know, the most efficient uh, and, and uh, and uh, time-sensitive way, because typically the commissioning uh, and the uh, the soft start is is all the last, very last part of, of construction, and everyone's rushing. Um, and so we're going to get through a couple of uh, examples uh, or things that we tend to do in those in those parts of the construction uh, period. Uh, also, really important to mention, uh, increase the uh, you know in the efficiency or the sustainability of a facility. Uh, comes from more than just getting a certification for a building. I think that's been mentioned already. In the past, it was good enough to seek, you know, a certification and hang a plaque on a wall uh, and, and everyone pat themselves on the back, but that's no longer good enough with uh, some of the sustainability uh, initiatives that are taking place today in light of, uh, you know, the greenhouse gas emission crisis and other things. So, uh, you know, increasing the efficiency of our buildings is very, very important and being able to measure and verify <clears throat> that those criteria are being met uh, is increasingly important. So commissioning with analytics, we'll focus on this piece, uh, both for uh, you know, the pre-occupancy substantial completion and post-occupancy periods. Uh, we take the design criteria, uh, as both Craig and Jason have, have uh, highlighted to us, simulations, models, uh, and the design intents, uh, and you know, the, the basis of design from the building. Uh, and then we use those uh, you know, later on to compare the actual performance of the building to those criteria. Uh, the first step in doing that is, of course, integration into the existing building automation systems. Uh, you know, one of Craig's slides mentioned master systems integrators, which we're seeing more and more uh, as a key part to the industry, where they're actually uh, one, one integrator responsible for all of these rather than having silos. So we'll integrate to the building automation system uh, typically through either a standard protocol like BACnet or Tritium uh, or using an API integration uh, into a digital twin model, which might be collecting that data. Um, organizing that data in, in, a, in an efficient way so that we can, uh, uh, you know, understand which points using metadata are which, uh, which systems are which, and doing that in an efficient way has really brought down the cost of implementation for these types of systems, uh, where we're using machine learning or bulk tagging and metadata in order to uh, transition from the design into understanding which physical components and points in the BAS are, are aligned to which systems. Uh, and then we can deploy <clears throat> what we would call commissioning specific analytics. And what that means is really we have a very short period of time during which uh, the commissioning of the building is gonna take place. And what we want to do is help everyone involved in that process to make that as efficient as possible. And gone are the days, hopefully soon, where the commissioning agents uh, will turn up to the building and uh, a large number of systems aren't even ready for commissioning or points aren't to where they should be and they're not named properly. So the functional testing assistance and the commission commissioning readiness assessment <clears throat> is something that we've been focusing a lot with our commissioning and engineering partners uh, where we can really get rid of a lot of wasted site time uh, and wasted visits to site in order to get there. 
uh, and just realize that things aren't quite ready. So that's been a, a very uh, large part of our learning over the last several years is that uh, that's a huge value proposition offering that we can help building commissioning processes with. Um, then we move into actual functional testing assistance. So identifying deficiencies, creating lists of those deficiencies so they can be managed well. And again, gone are the days where a commissioning agent may have to uh, manually just sample several zones. Uh, there's still some manual commissioning work to be done, of course, uh, but when we're looking at a building with a thousand zones, uh, we can be much more thorough using analytics and algorithms, identifying outliers uh, rather than doing a traditional sampling uh, commissioning approach. Um, so that's the, the commissioning phase. Then we move into ongoing monitoring analysis and, and monitoring-based commissioning. Uh, and what Craig's mentioning before was uh, model, uh, model and simulation-based um, you know, comparisons and performance analysis, uh, we can marry that with both historical, you know, performance, uh, have the model in there and have the actual performance of systems, both for the sequence or the intended ventilation rates, the KPIs surrounding uh, CO2 levels, but also energy, of course. Uh, and are we actually implementing some of those really great, you know, sequence optimizations that we've designed into the building? So if we're doing guideline 36 type, you know, trim and respond type of algorithms or uh, approaches in the control sequences, are those actually being implemented? And, and what's, what's the operation of the building uh, doing to maybe change that over time to avoid that kind of sawtooth in performance? So uh, new building commissioning and handoff really focuses on the readiness assessment. Is the building ready for commissioning uh, before we get there and actually waste time doing an assessment to realize that it's not quite ready? Uh, a deep analysis of all mechanical systems against the design spec with 100% sampling. So rather than just sampling a portion of them and then uh, and then and then going to uh, occupancy with only that being checked. And then the automated identification of mechanical controls and lighting system deficiencies, which overall just reduces friction and makes the experience better for everybody involved in the project. Um, and you know saves money at the end of the day as well, of course. And then for the monitoring based portion afterwards, you know the buildings can be with the same tool that has been used in in the commissioning phase, be monitored continuously on an ongoing basis during the operation. So post substantial, the operations team, the owner, uh, the you know the facility management company, whoever's working in that building, can then use that very same system that's been set up and and uh, usually you know more than paid for during that commissioning phase as far as uh, identification of issues uh, to help them operate the building in a more powerful way. Uh, integrations into digital twins is also something that uh, that is uh, starting to really happen between the, you know fault detection, diagnostics, and analytics and energy management systems into digital twin technology, which we're seeing as another emerging trend in the market. Uh, that has a lot of power to it. Um, yeah, and uh, really what we're getting to is, you know, the traditional commissioning time in a building can be calculated in an average number of minutes per system. Uh, and it's not that commissioning agents and building operation staff don't have to do these manual checks anymore. It's just that they can automate a large portion of those. And it might be a little hard to see on this slide. I'm sure they'll be handed out later. Uh, but the number of minutes associated with commissioning, say a zone system, uh, can be cut in about uh, to, to about one third of its traditional time. So it's a, a very uh, powerful business proposition uh, for a more thorough and, and better performance building. So that's back to you, Rory. Great stuff. Thanks, Keith. Um, great presentation. A lot of topics there as well, near and dear to my heart. And it's um, it's great to see the evolution of the commissioning process here um, in the context of, of carbon reduction and, uh, and copper tree are definitely at the forefront of, of innovating that uh, those processes. So um, kudos to you guys and uh, look forward to, um, I've got certainly again, I've got um, some questions for you, Keith. And again, would encourage uh, audience uh, 
um, to fire the questions into the chat as uh, as you think of them, and uh, we'll get to them here at the end. So um, we'll continue um, to our final panelists and uh, someone who I had the pleasure of hanging out with in Scottsdale last week, uh, Rick Ralston, CEO with BuildSpace. And we'll begin first with a, a short video uh, from BuildSpace. All right. So uh, thanks again, Rick. Uh, so Rick uh, is a career serial entrepreneur uh, who brings over 35 years of experience in the construction information services and technology. Rick's industry, industry accomplishments include the first digital construction information service in 1989. Rick then led the team that built the construction industry's first large-scale SaaS platform, private label to McGraw-Hill Construction in 2000. In 2011, Rick and his wife, Marcy, co-founded BillSpace. So again, welcome, Rick, and take it away. Thank you, Rory. Uh, I think everything that has been talked about today is uh, um, really, excuse me, um, discussing one process, and that's continuous uh, improvement of the built environment. And, uh, you know, that happens uh, at, at the uh, global level. COP26 is talking about, uh, um, uh, you know, determining goals and budging uh, uh, at the national level. And we heard a lot about the, uh, uh, the, the same process being deployed in, in individual buildings. Uh, as we look at decarbonizing, we need to uh, replace oil with data. And uh, what that really means in our view is energy optimization, labor, labor and service optimization, automation of services using IoT data, uh, technology enabled uh, uh, distributed energy sources, microgrids, batteries, uh, uh, thermal storage technologies, and a lot more. And there's trillions of dollars uh, in global wealth at stake, which the pandemic has really um, uh, emphasized, I think that, that the risks that we're facing uh, are very, very large. And uh, uh, so what we're trying to do is uh, decarbonize uh, the built environment using uh, data and the cloud. Uh, Sorry. So one of the biggest challenges that we face is how do we gain better visibility into existing buildings, into new, new construction design? And I think what it comes down to is uh, the idea of a common thread, a common uh, data environment 
uh, or services that uh, can be shared with all of the service providers, the stakeholders, uh, potentially government and, and so forth. And uh, that has to be high fidelity data. You know, the previous presenters have shown that the, the detail and the fidelity of, of, uh, of the BIM design with, with uh, embodied carbon um, and uh, how do we capture that and, and bring that forward through the built life cycle, uh, in, in improving the uh, um, access to operational data, energy data, and so forth, uh, and uh, be able to roll that up and bring it into this continuous improvement process. And, and so that, that's a challenge that I think we all face. Uh, and. Uh, we're, we're, we're tackling that um, in the cloud by integrating uh, manual services, you know, everything from cleaning to concrete uh, forming and, and uh, boring to, uh, to building automation in, installation and, uh, and commissioning. Um, and so I've got a, a very quick uh, uh, case study that I can show that, that will bring uh, some of the numbers together. So uh, one of our Key partners is a company called uh, QMC Submetering Solutions. Uh, they have an installed base of about 300,000 uh, electrical energy thermal water meters uh, and growing very quickly. And uh, uh, so we worked with with uh, QMC to digitize the the uh, entire installation commissioning process on new construction and in existing buildings. Um, and that process starts at the very early stages when a, when a new meter comes into uh, uh, the QMC warehouse, it's uh, bench tested, uh, sealed, configured, sent to the site uh, and uh, uh, installed, commissioned and handed over digitally uh, in the past two years, we've uh, uh, we've seen uh, QMC field teams uh, install about 16,000 meters, uh, and uh, as we're rolling this out, the existing base of, of uh, the other 300,000 meters are being added. Um, and the key thing here is that uh, we've changed the way of, of uh, installation and commissioning from the traditional document or, or uh, laptop uh, base to mobile and uh, near real time uh, collection of data. So here's some of the, the uh, benefits of, that uh, QMC have seen from, from uh, moving to this new digital process. Uh, approximately 20% uh, efficiency gain. And that, that's, that's simply uh, what used to take uh, you know, four days of uh, field work and one day in the office is, has changed to allowing their team to work five days in the field, deliver in real time and deliver that much quicker. Um, but it's also had a lot of other um, uh, benefits in terms of fewer errors, a lot less rework um, and the measurability of the field uh, installation and service so they know uh, that, that uh, they're on track or not uh, on, on a uh, process uh, in near real time uh, from, from remote. Uh, and then finally, 
you know, this this has provided a platform for the uh, the end customer, in most cases, a, a utility company to to manage their maintenance and recertification of these meters, which are meant to uh, to last for for many years of, of service uh, in the different buildings. So um, it's a real example of what is happening uh, today in the field. Uh, and it's uh, one of the more complex uh, uh, services on the construction site because everything that has is done has to be done very accurately and uh, over a long period of time. So uh, I think this is just a good example of, of, uh, of real world um, digitization. And uh, when we think of, of continuous improvement, the the ability to capture both the energy and, and water data and the labor data associated with uh, uh, with these services is is uh, is where the the innovation is really happening. So, I'll turn it back over to you, uh, Rory. Great stuff. Thanks, Rick. And uh, we'll bring everyone back uh, right now, so all the panelists can get the cameras back on again, and we'll go to the Q and A. So uh, we've got some questions coming in from the audience. Um, I'm going to begin with one of my own here to Jason. And uh, again, I would encourage um, audience members to uh, throw questions into the chat uh, box here, and I'll uh, I'll get them out to the team. Um, but I'm going to start with Jason. Um, back to your presentation, excellent presentation. Um, where do you see gaps in the current design process where technology can support a robust pathway to carbon neutrality? Uh, thanks, Rory. I, I think there are really three gaps. Uh, we have uh, very little information on the direct uh, embodied carbon impacts of technological systems. Um, the, the current carbon databases that we're using, the various databases, which are definitely are, are growing every day to, to capture more uh, materials and systems, um, have, a, ha, have some pretty big gaps. I'll give you an example. Um, trying to do the car body carbon footprint of a microwave. We've got 26 different locations where parts are manufactured of multiple materials that all have to be shipped and then assembled and then reshipped. It's a very difficult calculation uh, to do. Uh, um, so, so we don't have that data. Um, we really don't have validated carbon strategies yet because this is relatively new. So, so uh, proper strategies. We do for operational. We say, oh, 20% better than, say, an ASHRAE standard, but we don't really know what that means from a from an embodied carbon uh, standard. And most tools that are out there are calculators rather than design target setting. And so, so moving towards setting achievable targets that will allow the industry to move forward, I think, is, is critical. Um, and third, I think, is, is really aligns with what most of the great presentations were today, which is how is that data useful to making better decisions, both in the target setting stage, but then in the, the validating stage and the operations and maintenance? And so an industry standard about how that is used or that part, that workflow that is integrated as part of every project, I think it happens on a focused high-performance high projects, but it doesn't happen industry-wide that that broad, broad impact. So there's definitely work to do as a, as a market sector, construction market sector to get there. Excellent. No good answer. Um, Craig, going to go to you next. And actually, we have a question from the audience. So um, the question is, one of the significant challenges of IP, IPMVP option D is calibration. 
can you please elaborate on how Aorus addresses this and can verify performance from day one? Yeah, absolutely. I can I can address this and how we do it. Um, I love the question because it just shows that the real calm audiences are practitioners. They're in the trenches with us. So I respect the question. But just to bring everybody else up to speed who might not understand um, IPMPP option D is what they're talking about is historically energy modeling was used for transactional purposes. We bring up a model, we size our units, we get our loads on the building, we purchase our units and we discard the model never to be seen again. And we believe that the technology of simulation once invested in can be used throughout the life cycle of a building. So what we do in order to use it and operationalize the model, that's what we refer to that as, is we take it from transaction, we're making very early decisions and then we make our systems and we continue to reinform that model all the way through 100% documents. So every time we talk about alternative systems or units or VE or DVE, <laughs> um, then we're using that information to reinform back to the model. When we get into construction, submittals, change orders, all of those uh, substitution requests that come in during construction, all the way through field inspections, QAQC commissioning, um, all those test results are reinforming the model so that when we hit punch list, that model is fully operationalized. And we're talking about a new building, right? So it's fully operationalized at that point of punch list. One of two things have to happen at that point, right? So either the building is gonna commission and come to the model or the model is gonna have to come to the, um, come to the building. But when you're talking about high performance buildings and you're, you're targeting levels of 14 EUI, even if you miss it by 10%, you're getting pretty close to where you wanna be. So we, on new construction, is we will work with the commissioning agents uh, to make sure that the building gets as close to the model as possible. Then we baseline that model, quote unquote, and that model then uh, gets placed into the digital twin or the MV system. Existing buildings are different. Existing buildings, we want to take Rick's processes or Keith's processes, put them into the building first because we want to take that dynamic data and we want to use that to calibrate the model. So then once we, you know, we go into an existing building, we want to bring a model up as quickly as we can. We want to get that model calibrated to the dynamic data as quickly as possible and then use it for making better decisions for retrofit, life cycle, renovations, any, any trigger we have within that building. And then those same processes kick back in where we reinform the model through design, we reinform that model through construction, and then we, we close the gap in, in construction as quickly as possible. And then we can use it for monitoring-based commissioning and we can use it for interrogation-based commissioning. Great answer, Craig. Um, Keith, you also had some uh, some great slides on commissioning there. Um, I had a question, you know, specifically, what are the main advantages uh, in new construction commissioning um, if if we can integrate building analytics? If we can use building analytics in new construction commissioning. Um, can you go over some of the big advantages to doing that? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, the human process is flawed, obviously, and then, you know, it's time-based, it's labor-based. Um, I, what, what I mentioned in my presentation too is that you know you're at the end of the construction period and there's a lot of pressure. You know, when's the last time a construction process came under budget and under you know under schedule? It's pretty rare. Usually everyone's kind of chomping at the bit. The owner wants to occupy. You know, there's there's some pressures there and it, the natural approach is to kind of rush through some processes there and that's really not advantageous for anyone involved. Um, at all. So um, I think one of the main advantages is just using um, software and doing it in a way that is revolutionary compared to what the previous process had been, which is, you know, sample a few of the systems and go, okay, everything looks good from what we looked at. 
but you know, uh, you know, 17% of the boxes got programmed by a different technician who, you know, had a period in the wrong place in one of his programs. Like literally, those are the kind of issues that we're seeing out in the field, and those can have kind of impacts that you wouldn't believe on the performance of the building. You know, just just those little silly things. So I think um, that kind of uh, approach, being able to use data in a in a more targeted and a bulk away using metadata and using data to target, you know, and look at a thousand systems at once, identify these 17 of them here aren't performing the way they should be. The program that's supposed to be resetting to outside air isn't doing that. Um, let's look at that right now in the commissioning process rather than waiting until, you know, either it never gets discovered because that's one of the options. It just never gets discovered and the building operates that way for 25 years until someone comes in does a retro commissioning and aha, look at all the stuff we found. Um, you know, so it really, that's, that's one of the main advantages. I think time and just the thoroughness that's, that's possible with using data to, to commission. Yeah, definitely. And I would also add to that, you know, just the, you know, if we were, if we were able to minimize wasted trips by using analytics, um, that would be huge uh, as well, just from, uh, from a project efficiency perspective, but also I'm, I'm sure if we track the carbon emissions from the, the amount of times that, Contractor said they were ready. You flew there. They weren't ready. You flew back. You flew back. <laughs> so uh, definitely uh, great to see analytics uh, evolving that commissioning process and really revolutionizing how we're how we're utilizing data in that process as well. Um, Rick, uh, we'll go to you next. Um, so with the pandemic, what trends are you seeing in the new construction and retrofit of of well, new retrofit of buildings and new construction? What what trends are you seeing, Eric? Well, you know, I think many of them have been uh, discussed uh, in this panel already, but uh, obviously indoor air quality has, has uh, uh, taken a, a, a big leap in, in, uh, in, in where, where it's uh, positioned in the pecking order. Uh, but uh, I think the other thing that's really uh, uh, disrupted the construction industry, especially is the labor shortages and, and material shortages and, and and uh, how do we uh, complete projects on schedule uh, when we don't have uh, that access to, uh, um, you know, to, to knowledge and data about what, what, when the material will be available or, or, uh, or how can we uh, work around that and, and, and make uh, more dynamic um, decisions on the, on the job site and so forth. And, and uh, uh, so I think those are the biggest one, but, ones, but obviously um, sustainability, I think, took a bit of a backseat for for a few months maybe, but it's coming back with vengeance now. Good stuff. Thanks for that, Rick. Um, Jason, we'll go back to you next. Um, how can you address the potential increase in cost for additional deployed technologies with clients, or what, what value does it bring to them? Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, so looking at all building systems simultaneously, I think Craig, Craig touched on this as well, so you can get the disciplines uh, together. Um, so we, what we want to do is do that. those types of simulations um, in as real, real time as possible. And so what we look for there is trade-offs. So better focus on envelope, different type of mechanical system sizing, or maybe even systems that can become simpler to operate, might last longer, might even provide better comfort ranges and so forth. So, so that supports the idea of cost tunneling over um, peaking from a CapEx uh, perspective. So rather than continually adding technology, what we wanna do by looking at all those disciplines is 
to try to make sure we're addressing the technology of each discipline that they have, they're, they're working in a complementary way to lower the overall impact, both embodied and, and operational. So ultimately that gives you right-sized or fit-for-purpose uh, 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 solutions. So uh, the important thing about that, I think, is that we do have good tools that help address that. So you're approaching a complex issue from a perspective of complexity. So our tools can manage complexity really well. We're in the old way, we just kind of add this on, add a discipline, add something else, and that, that CapEx would go up. Now, the flip side of that is not thinking about CapEx at all and thinking about total cost of ownership. Because that's a much better indicator uh, uh, and, and there are much bigger cost drivers outside of CapEx over the life cycle cost of owning the building. That you know, the operations maintenance is a huge cost, much bigger than the CapEx and the design, and certainly way bigger than the design cost it would take to do this integrated service correctly in, in the beginning. Um, but the cost of the people is far outweighs even the operations and maintenance. So worker productivity by designing a good, well-built building that's fit for purpose, that provides a healthy environment has the probably the best ROI of any decision that you would make. But you have to think about that 30 years of occupation and the productivity of the people in that building really up front. And we find the best way to do that is, is, to, is to both organizationally bring the disciplines together, but also technologically. How do we model simultaneous systems working together to get the best results? Awesome, good answer. Uh, we've got a couple of questions uh, coming in here. Uh, Keith, you got a couple. I'll, I'll give you a couple of um, quick-fire questions here. Does CopperTree Kaizen have its own API that allows users to export BMS and Insight data? Uh, this is someone who's looking to merge BMS and Kaizen's Insight with other business business units' data. Um, mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a bit on that, Keith? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's second. The next question following up is very similar in that it asks about uh, monitoring-based commissioning being put into work order processes and and potentially third-party CMMS tools and that type of thing. So, I think mm -hmm. from a from a high level, I would say that we're seeing a much bigger uh, adoption now of API to API, system to system communication than we used to have before, where a vendor would come in and say, I do this, this is my platform, and then you'd buy another platform to do something else and another one over here. The digital twin kind of revolution is is coming, you know, fast and furious and integration of the operational space with analytics, with energy management systems, with access control, occupancy detection, and it's all everybody seems to be finally realizing that those systems have to all talk to each other and we should all play nice. Um, nobody's gonna do everything perfectly. People are specialists still in what they do. Um, and so I think having the ability to integrate all those systems. So specifically answering these questions, CMMS, uh, you know, our platform, you know, on our side does include some work order or some, some uh, uh, management tools to be able to assign a status to something as open or closed, to assign it to a user, to track notes within it, tag it, et cetera. Uh, but all that is available through an API. So if you were using a third party tool, maybe Rick's tool or another CMMS tool, um, you can actually integrate those. So those work orders are pushed into the tool that the operators are using. And we're doing the same with digital tw digital twins as well, where you know the drawings, the all the maintenance procedures, the manuals, everything's there within the twin, and you have real-time operational data coming in, feeding the workflow for the operators, and that's a very powerful proposition. And I don't think anyone can do it by themselves because, you know, there's very specialist systems and applications that we're dealing with here. But these these API revolution, so to speak, certainly has um, has brought this, you know, into possibility now. So. Uh, yeah. No. A lot of uh, that's that's the the new frontier, and I think the the common common thread through all of that is is well-organized data 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, Craig, we'll go back to you real quick. Uh, you had some great slides there. I, I love your your theme of evidence-based performance, and uh, you had some good slides there on continuous monitoring of of air. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on um, your opinion on continuous monitoring versus testing. And second part of that question, where do you see standards like Reset Air fitting into that mix moving forward? So our approach you know, to this conversation really is from a building science perspective, right? And if we do our job right and we use the natural order sustainability, we're getting at the envelope first, right? We're gonna make sure we have a thermal barrier and an air barrier. If I do my job right, and I believe we can do that without any premium and cost of construction because I'm building a wall anyways, right? Just to test my air barriers, no great leap. Um, but if we can transition that wall and make sure that all the um, connectivities are done properly, then I'm getting at air infiltration and air exfiltration, right? Because I'm bringing the air into that building through ductwork that I can put filters on and I control it. So effectively, Rory, what we do when you use an envelope first approach towards building science and building performance, air quality is free money. And then we look at it and say, okay, well, if it's free money, what is the cost of monitoring that building? And again, monitoring that building, look at my CO2 when you see those spikes, right? You see this that happens. If I'm only going to look at my at my targeted air quality as a point in time, am I hitting it on the peak? Am I hitting it on the valley? Where am I at on it? You just don't know the answer to that question. It could be anywhere at any time of the day. The only really true way to know your, if your air quality is meeting those thresholds of performance, and that's what Reset Air does, is that you have to look at it in a continuous way. So what Reset Air does for us is it sets a standardization for monitors so we don't turn into bricks in six months. It sets a standardization for deployment of those monitors. We don't want them in the ductwork, which is where our traditional MEPs like to put all those sensors. We want it in stratification where we're breathing our air and we want it where people are. And it also sets the standardization for data, right? We don't want to send that data through a bunch of analytics or a bunch of platforms that changes the value of that data. And we want to get that data to the end user. That's what Reset Air does for us. It's a simple standard at the end of the day. And we look at that as free money. If we're getting at an envelope first approach, we can give air quality to our to our clients relatively easily. If you do it using code-based criteria, which in my opinion is the worst building you're legally allowed to build, then your air infiltration and exfiltration rates aren't managed. And that at that point, the only way to deal with air quality is to pressurize your building with your systems. Well, guess what happens? My carbon footprint gets bigger because I'm using more equipment. I have to, I have to compensate for bad decisions violating the natural order of sustainability, and it costs us money every single time. If you do it right and you 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 respect building science, you respect the natural order of sustainability, at the end of the day, it's free money. And Reset Air is so synergistic with an envelope first approach that we use it pretty much on every project we do. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's uh, really get, great to see you guys uh, pushing pushing forward with that. Um, Rick, we'll go over to you. Um, you made a comment I heard you mention uh, before, uh, data must replace oil. You know, if, if you want to decarbonize the built environment, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I think we've all been talking about the same thing today, right? It, it's it's how do we um, change processes to make uh, things more efficient, use less uh, less uh, carbon in in our uh, processes, and uh, you know that could be uh, fewer truck rolls. It could be uh, changing processes or changing equipment from from uh, you know natural gas to to electric or whatever it is. But but the 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 overall concept I think is is that the continuous improvement um, 
to decarbonize the global environment uh, will come through data. And uh, that's, that's uh, where we're all on that journey. And, and uh, you know, the, the, that continuous improvement uh, process uh, uh, cycle that, that uh, I showed is, is how it happens at individual uh, buildings at, uh, uh, across portfolios or, or smart cities or, or globally. No, for sure. Um, Craig, we'll go back, or sorry, uh, Keith, we'll go back to Keith. Um, question here for you, Keith. How can we best transition from the commissioning construction phases to ongoing operations using data analytics? You had some great slides on that there as well. I just wanted to kind of uh, tease that out a little bit. How, what's the smoothest way to make that transition? Yeah, I think, I mean, tr training for the operators, um, you know, the fact that we're even providing data now that shows them the impacts of some of the decisions that people are making and uh, those educated decisions can be made because one of the things I'll just bring up, it's not 100% related to the question you just asked, Rory, but I think it illustrates the point. You asked about, you know, the impact of COVID. I think you asked Rick that question. Um, what we're seeing is customers are saying, well, COVID's here now, so we have to ventilate. So everything on 100 percent, 24 hours a day, let's ventilate the building to get rid of COVID. Well, the truth is there's people in the building for maybe 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, and they're ventilating 100 percent outdoor, you know, outdoor air fans at 100 percent speed, 24 hours a day. And we're looking at that going that that decision to do that while it's well intended. Um, has an impact, a huge impact, and there's nobody in the building. And maybe if we had occupancy sensors driving some of that, we could say, hey, well, look, you know, there actually isn't anyone even in there and nobody comes until six in the morning. So let's start ventilating at four. We'll do a good purge then, you know, and when people arrive at six, here we go kind of thing, rather than just running everything 24 seven. But the operators typically, they say, well, we need ventilation and they turn it on. So if we have the ability to show, um, you know, from commissioning onward, what the impacts are of those decisions that are being made, you know, the overrides, the schedule changes, the, the small things that trickle in. Because even when you start with a very efficient building and everything's done properly, you can still operate that building in a way that will be inefficient, right? I mean, even if uh, you build all the guards into it, you still, you still have that type of thing happen. So I think, you know, having the operations team understand that, you know, first of all, understand the, the system they're inheriting and that they're getting because, you know, a lot of times they just get thrown a building. Here it is. Um, so a, a bigger focus on training and then also the tools for them to look at the data and to understand, you know, what's happening. And when things get brought up to them, um, we, we do a lot of work with customers in what we call managed services, which is a little bit of handholding, so to speak. Every month we have a meeting and we highlight a few things that we found and say, hey, look, look at these things and we should look at those and maybe bring your subcontractor in and get those fixed. Or why did you do this, make this decision? Sometimes they're very valid and other times um, they're not. So I think just data, again, having access to the data, a place to go look at it, understanding what it means uh, and making it less complicated. Um, you know, building automation systems have too many alarms. So people just go, oh, there's too many going on. I just do what I do. Um, so it's it's making that a little more actionable, more more quantified. Um, and if you know, like I love Craig's slides, you know, here's where you're supposed to be, and here's where you are. Why are you not there, right? Let's figure that out. At least that starts the conversation and saying we modeled this thing, and physics say it, that it should be here. Yet the actual performance on an ongoing basis is not there. So I think that part of it really helps to um, do the soft start and hand over to the operations. No, Keith, absolutely. Can I add, sorry, oh, can, sorry. Can I add that the uh, uh, the, the stakeholders that are involved now are often different. Like for me as a tenant in this building, uh, my interest in, in indoor air quality is to meet my compliance requirements. And it's, it's not something that I have access to the, 
building automation system to address. So, so you know, we're, we're looking at a very different world in that sense as well. To, you know, we have to think of who is it that, that needs this data, and uh, you know that 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 is a a, a pandemic uh, outcome as well. I think. Ah, hundred percent. I, while we're talking about operation, maybe go back to Craig. Um, you've uh, you had, uh, brought up some good points there on the convergence of building science and data science. I mean, how how does that convergence enable building operations? I, I think it's I think it's where the puck is going. It's um, the macro trend in our industry, right? Using using historical analytics to optimize buildings is awesome, and there's a ton of data science out there that are doing wonderful jobs at doing that. But you're talking about an incremental improvement. And if you really want to talk about you know, climate change and how do we address the building's consumption of energy, you have to come at it from a building science perspective. So when you look at this, when we talk about building science, I want to, I want to stress this, Rory, because I think it's important, right? So know your spectrums. You can build a building to code, which I've already given you my opinion on, and you can build a building that is the most highest performance building that exists, Passive House. That's a 14 EUI. So you can have a difference between 90, 95, 100 EUI and 14 EUI. What we argue is rather than coming at it from an incremental perspective, which lead and energy star and other prescriptive criteria has taught us is to start at your baseline and you come down. How do you know when you win? When do you stop? Um, do you get 15% better and raise your arms in here? Do you get 20% better, raise your arms in here? If you go to passive house levels, you're talking about a 75% improvement in building performance. And the only reason why our owners wouldn't do that is cost. That's the only reason. Other than that, all costs being equal, we're going to do passive house all day long at that level because we can. So then we start coming up. So we take that whole paradigm and you flip it on its head and you say, well, wait a second. If I started a 14 UI and I can't afford that, when can I? We start coming up and we go through our, our snap points of window or um, units, HVAC systems and wall assemblies. And as soon as you hit that snap point that becomes affordable, you win. We have never gotten above 25 or 30 EUI when we do that model. And at every time we're, we're killing the incremental improvement by at least 50%. And that's how you get at building performance. You could have a 30 EUI building and get at climate change and carbon reduction all day long. You cannot have a building that's 15% improvement on building performance and get at climate change. You just can't do it. So when we look at this, the answer to your question is coming at this problem from a productivity standpoint and a cost perspective, you have to use building science and data science together. When you do that, you can build buildings that can be operated for 75 years at the levels we want to operate them at. If you come at it just from a data science, my argument is you're not going to get deep enough. And if you come at it just from a building science to Keith's point, we just don't know. And that building could lag very quickly and very easily. So again, that's how we see the merging of the two. Good answer. Um, I got a couple of quick fire questions here. Um, maybe I'll start with Jason. Just we talked a little bit about gamifying carbon. You know, I mean, how how do we how do we get people more interested? How do we get the mainstream O&M teams on board with with being interested and into this and and just you know making it a little more uh, bite sized, I guess. That's that's a good one. I mean, you know, it, typical designers want to look at the dial when they're designing and make sure that the dial's in the green, and that's enough. And as long as, but we don't have a lot of tools that show the dials in the green. And if we do, they can't interpret what the green means anyway. So what do we do? Well, one of the things I think is, is um, the notion of EUI might change a little bit. So the metrics we're starting to use are 
uh, carbon per area over time and cost, or a measure of productivity per carbon per cost over time. So th thinking about measures that incorporate that operations and maintenance and the productivity together is new ways of thinking. I mean, EUI got us a really long way, right? It, it set up, for example, Passive House and the ability to come up with strategies that will really reduce. If you want to get to that total cost of ownership in terms of carbon, you have to change the measure, the measure uh, of what's important and add that in. So I think there are ways to get there. We've started to look at that as a carbon for area over time. I'm really interested in trying to move that to productivity, and that's bringing in both soft, I don't want to call it soft science, but it's, it's bringing in more qualitative aspects of science alongside quantitative aspects. Um, but I think that has to be done because if we don't think about it as a simple, clear metric, but it incorporates all those pieces, I think it's quite difficult. Things, things will be simplified and left behind rather than we need to create a simple standard that is, has a lot of complex backends. Hey, Rory, I, I wanna um, just comment real quick what Jason just said. I completely agree. Jason, I think you killed it on that answer because of the four measures of whole building performance, site EUI, source EUI, total cost, and carbon, I can gain site source cost all day long and I can make that, it's like lead, right? I can, green, I can greenwash that as much as I want to get the answer that I want. Carbon, carbon's the only one I can't, I cannot greenwash. So I agree with you. It's a harder conversation to have, and I think you articulated the difference between operational and embodied very well, but that's where the market is going. We have to open up a conversation around carbon. That's the only one we can't gain. Yeah. And I think I, I think that should be uh, carbon risk as well, the financial risk of it's not just total cost of ownership, it's you know, the pandemic and 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 uh, uh, and, and decarbonization and, and uh, you know, the, the people's people's appetite and mood for for decarbonization are uh, have really changed the the risk profile of commercial real estate and and you know everybody's still trying to figure out what that is but you know will people come back to these buildings you know if you have a passive house uh, designed building you're probably uh, much less risk than than a uh, class B, 100% uh, outside air, and and all of the other factors that we've talked about. Yes, so so much so. Sorry that um, we're actually talking with one of the major um, uh, auditing firms, you know, the big four that actually have a carbon cost accounting risk reduction group now that are going out and talking to large corporations about their climate risk and how they can reduce that and real estate is a large part of that discussion so it's interesting because now we're starting to see and and managing that risk is they're going to start auditing it and they're using um uh, they're using crypto technology in order to trace source carbon uh, so that it can't be changed over time so they can be audited properly, right? There's some new stuff coming out that we're starting to see out there that is really interesting along those lines because it is a, a big risk for a corporation when we're starting to talk about carbon taxing. Like in Canada, we have carbon taxing. Um, that's going to become, it's going to start hitting the books pretty soon here and companies are going to start to take note. <laughs> so, well, while, we, while we get set up for the question, I, I, I wanted to, to, to you know, pile on something that Rick said about risk, which I think is really really uh, key as well. Um, you know, the cost, a lot of, we see a lot of our, our large global clients, they're, they're pushing to transform their, their portfolio, but in the end, many of them are, 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 are gonna be looking at RECs. 
So when they look at like the cost of a ton per carbon wreck, it's like, what is it, 10 or $12 a ton now? But the outlook of that in 10 years is gonna be easily over $100. And so that's real cost all of a sudden. And so it's a, it's a health and well-being cost. It's also a financial cost. And aligning those two things together, I think is, uh, is, a, is a big piece. And when we can start calculating what that level of risk is over time, and I'm always thinking about how does that operation period, is it 15 years, 30 years, whatever that ownership timetable is, and there are different clients have different ones, those are critical pieces to discuss because every, every site is hundreds of thousands of dollars, or in some cases, like local law 97 in New York City, put some buildings at a million dollars uh, of fines because they're not operating where they should be, the, this, the, the, these issues of risk become, become drivers. You don't do it for the good of mankind, you do it for your bottom line. Yeah, yeah. I met, Craig, you were mentioning too, you said, you know, you look at the EUI and then you work your way up till you could afford it. But arguably, if you look at a long enough time period, as long as you're not flipping the building, you're not building it to sell it off, you're gonna hold it for a long time. You know, I think people are terribly short-sighted with how they look at their financial modeling. So it's like, you know, you have data science, you have building science, and then you have finance, you know, finance science, essentially, that we should be looking at a longer term here rather than just being penny smart, pound foolish, which seems to be the case. Um, in most cases, it's like value engineering, left, right, and center, everything out that, you know, that gets designed in that's, um, that, that could have that longer term payback in favor of short-term, you know, financial benefit, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, Jason, too, just one. Sorry, that wasn't me. <laughs> um, the the ability to see transparently through a portfolio of buildings is super important. We're starting to see digital twins give us a trend of data on that. We can model community of buildings as easily as we can model a single building and we can bring them up at various points. You could do default modeling all the way through calibrated modeling. So we're able to basically go into um, portfolios of buildings for universities, governmental agencies, and other um, businesses that own numerous buildings and model them all so you can start to see where your low-hanging fruit is. So the whole concept is it's no different than anything else you're doing, right? I mean, how do you how do you break down how do you break down the problem and solve the problem? You have to start to piece it out, right? How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I think from an operational um, carbon perspective. The technology and science exists to solve that problem. And again, we've tried to articulate the best practices and how we go about that. It simultaneously gets after indoor air quality. The embodied energy side of the discussion is much more challenging because the tools don't yet exist. And I would say more, more than the tools, the, um, the, data, the data doesn't yet exist. If you look at the Carbon Leadership Forum and they have the EC3 database that has EPDs, which are you know, life cycle analysis of carbon of materials. Um, in Europe, those databases are robust and full. In Canada, they are. In the United States, they are not. So even if you have the greatest tool in the world, we don't have the underlying data yet to get after um, embodied energy. But Jason, to your point, that's getting better. And I think if we could start to interject that conversation and start to use um, from a leadership level our clients to select better products that are disclosing these sorts of things, it's going to advance that conversation even further. I'm back, I think. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah, hey, Rory. Oh, there we go. A lot of fun. Get all the fancy microphones and everything. Just go back to the old school laptop here. So <laughs> good stuff. Well, uh, apologies for that. Technology glitches aside there. Looks like you guys got on with the conversation without me. So that's uh, great to see. Not that, uh, not that you guys have any trouble uh, getting on with the conversation. 
Um, so yeah, we're just getting to the the end of the quick fire questions here, and about getting ready to wrap up, anyways. Um, uh, the one last question I had here was, oh, I got a couple, but the, this is one that I'll throw out to everyone. Bit of a loaded question, and kind of maybe as you answer it, maybe give us your your kind of Springer's final thoughts here on, on where you think the industry is going. But what what's the ROI for smart buildings? You know, what's the ROI for all of this conversation that we have moving forward? Where where do we find value? I guess where does the where, does our, where do our clients find value, the building owners, the organizations that we that we work for and strive to, to help achieve these goals? Where would Craig, you want to start, Craig, and we'll go down the line? Yeah, go ahead, Craig. Oh, I'm, I'm the unicorn in the room. I'm coming at it from a different, a totally different angle. So um, we, we, in the methodology and the approach towards building science that we take, we don't really need an ROI um, because we believe that we can build high performance buildings without uh, a premium in first cost. That's borne out in data all over the place. We have it in our passive house networks. You can go to the passive house accelerator and see it. You can go to my website and see it. We, we um, talk about that a lot. And that's because we take that bottom up approach. So we get to building performance very quickly and easily. When it comes to the smart side, the smart building side of the discussion, Again, we've seen on projects that we've been involved with, if, you, if you're able to bring in the right Division 25 engineers, that's your system integration components of that, we believe that you can do those at cost because you're gonna to get to a converged network. It's gonna be cheaper than doing 15 networks in a building. You're gonna to get to open integrated technologies that the owners are gonna ultimately own at the end of the day. So we believe that you can get at a robust open integration platform for IoT, data aggregation, data lake, and then looking at these capabilities that these gentlemen have here today. Um, but from a building science perspective, we believe that you can build a high performance building without spending premiums. So we come at it from a different angle. We don't necessarily need to look at the ROI. And if we do look at the ROI, all we have to simply do is go to building occupant benefit. Building occupant benefit um, is gonna exceed um, carbon in a building by tenfold. And when you talk about air quality and reset air, you know, our clients know that that value is greater than zero. We may argue about the total value of that because it's sort of an intangible. But at the end of the day, if you want to track the right tenants, you want to get at asset valuation, um, they get our clients get at that pretty quickly with these types of buildings. Great answer. Jason, you want to take a stab at it? Sure. Uh, I, I totally agree with, with Craig. I, I think we could do it without cost premium. Um, I would also say that there is data that the sample size is not large, but real data is coming out that says smarter, greener buildings improve executive function in the 70% range. If you think of that from a tenancy perspective of your occupants having better executive function, better decision-making skill sets over the life cycle of you owning the building, that far outweighs any benefit you could on a simple measure of What's, what, what's my cost of energy or cost of carbon in the short term? And the more productive a building is, the better use you're putting towards that carbon. Swing the other way and it's, we should never build anything at all and we shouldn't operate anything. That's the wrong way to go, probably. The better way is, can we make something better and more useful and significantly enhance the quality of the purpose of that building so that it lasts longer so that the carbon is more useful that we're spending. Can't eliminate it altogether, but you could make it significantly more useful. And the ROI on that use case, the, for the ROI on the productivity as a measure, far outweighs the, the decisions of 
have I used this brick or this brick to reduce my carbon? We should still think of those things because resources are scarce regardless, but it's that worker productivity, health and well-being, and the, the building and those carbon decisions in service of that, I think that makes the strongest case for me. Awesome. Rick, you're if I could, so, so to me, data is an asset in itself. And, and I, I read uh, recently that uh, it was actually Statistics Canada uh, compared the value of data in databases to the value of the um, oil reserves still underground in Canada. And their, their estimate was about 70%. Uh, so, so the value of data that comes from smart buildings you know, it, it's, it, it comes from being able to, to create measurable savings. And that's, that's where the ROI of the, of the smart building comes from in very simple terms. So, so you know, it may be uh, through you know, reduced carbon taxes or, or you know, in, in savings in energy or water or labor or all of those things and all of those things will happen if we have the right data. So, so that's where the, that ROI comes from. And, and uh, you know, digital twins are assets uh, that are adding value, saving money for the, the end customer, for the end of the, for the, the whole life cycle of that, that uh, building. And, you know, we're, we're measuring that. We can see what those, those, those savings are. And we've, you know, Keith uh, described some earlier on just on commissioning, and and uh, you know we're seeing labor savings on virtually all services. So so you know that that's that's what's creating the value of that asset and that that data. So that's yep. that's my Keith. We'll leave the the final word to you then on the on the ROI or the value. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I think what the others are, are talking about, there's a rule called the 330-300 rule, which is essentially that, you know, for every $3 you spend building a facility, you spend 30 operating it, and then you spend 300 on the people's salaries that are inside that building, right, over the life cycle of the building. So, um, you know, that being said, energy, you know, you know, efficiency is still very important, but if you can target your your, your work and your things that you're focusing on, on uh, double-edged uh, approaches, which save energy and improve indoor comfort and productivity, that's kind of the ultimate because you're reducing, you know, you're, you're increasing productivity, which is really good for the bottom line. You know, corporations love that, but also still, you know, reducing the energy consumption and you know, increasing the efficiency of the building. So um, of course, you know, assuming you've designed it in a very efficient way. So to me, that's uh, the ideal um, panacea, right? You go into like this this area where you're reducing, and a lot of times those things are tied together. We find issues that we're helping solve that are both an energy problem, but they're also a comfort or an indoor, you know, indoor well well-being type of problem. So, yep. we'll leave it at that. For sure. Well, I would just like to say thanks to all the panelists, uh, Sarah. If you want to close things out, um, thank you very much to everyone, and thanks to the audience for the great questions. Well, thank you very much, Rory, for moderating, and thanks to the panelists for sharing your insights with the community, and also thanks to the attendees for joining us today and hanging with us while we were figuring out those audio issues. Appreciate it, and um, yeah, want to thank everyone for taking time out of your busy schedules. I know that everyone is um, very busy these days, so it's um, a real um, testament to the thought leaders that are on this panel that you joined us today. And with that, I'd like to wish everyone a wonderful rest of your day, and I hope you join us for our next webinars. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone.